If you have your Bibles, why don't you open them to Mark chapter 8. That's where, we're, where we will be today. <clears throat> we have been chronologically studying the life of Christ. We've been walking in His steps, walking with Jesus, <clears throat> as we have endeavored to learn the context of where Jesus is, where He's going, what He's doing. Um, as we've said uh, every week, uh, you can text questions. Um, during the message, there will be a phone number at the bottom of the slide. Uh, also in your bulletin, there is a handout. Their phone number is at the bottom of the bulletin, so you can text questions uh, related to the message if you have any questions that come up. We encourage you to do that, and at, towards the end of the service, we'll address those questions. Um, give me one second. I need to do something. Um, I think we still had the heat on in here. And we did. All right, there you go. If you were starting to sweat, <laughs> there you go. It was some, I used the force. <clears throat> uh, but there's an app for that, so. All right, so we are in a cha- we're in volume three of In His Steps, part three. The title of today's message is In His Steps. We'll be looking at Mark chapter eight, and as I said, you can text questions. We encourage you to do it. We'll interact a little bit towards the end of the service. Just to give you a, a little bit of a background, um, Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. This is a town that a good Jewish folk would not have gone to because it was the location for the, uh, it was the hub for the idol worship of the goat god Pan. And it was also the administrative capital for the Roman government in that area, in the region, so since the Jews didn't want Rome in their area, um, and they certainly wouldn't have visited the uh, temples to Pan, uh, this is not a place that the Jewish folks would have visited. But Jesus was unfazed by all that, And he took his disciples on a bit of a field trip. And if you missed that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was part one of this volume. Uh, It was called The Gates of Hell. And it will explain that reference. It will explain what Jesus meant when he was referring to the gates of hell. So I encourage you to to go back and listen to it. But Caesarea Philippi at the gates of hell is where Peter made the declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the real deal. In a a generation of all these fake messiahs, you are the one. You're the son of God. Now, why was that important? Well, why was Peter's declaration so revolutionary? Because they were surrounded by frauds. They were surrounded by charlatans. They were surrounded by fakes who had made claims to be God, but clearly were not. And what's interesting is Jesus never addresses these fake messiahs that were popping up in his day and age, but he repeatedly rebuked the religious leaders throughout the New Testament. They promised a pathway to God, but they loaded it down with all of these rules and regulations until God had to come down as a man himself and correct their abuses. You know you've really strayed from the path when God has to come down himself and show up at your church service to correct you. So Peter made the declaration that Jesus is the legitimate Messiah. And that should be cause for celebration. 
They finally found the one they're looking for. They finally found out about saving faith, a way to salvation through the Son of God. And because Jesus loved them, he told them ahead of time what was going to happen. From here on out, Jesus' course is set. He will still travel throughout Israel, but he is making his way. His final destination is to a cross outside of Jerusalem. And as Jesus walked with the disciples back into Israel, he taught them about serving faith. Not just confessing Christ, but truly following him. So we're looking at Mark chapter 8, and we're beginning in verse 31. It says, And and Jesus began to teach them, he began to instruct and explain, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter confessed that Jesus is the Messiah and the other disciples agreed. So instead of Jesus responding by saying, let me show you all the benefits, Jesus instead replied with, let me show you the cost. Things that are valuable are costly. A healthy marriage will cost you monetarily. but also spiritually. You have to fight against the plans of the enemy to have a healthy marriage. You have to feed yourself spiritually. You have to starve your sinful nature. And there is a cost to be paid for that. Anything worthwhile will be costly in some regard. Jesus wanted to ensure these 12 men knew what they were getting themselves into. Jesus was not going to be voted in as the next high priest of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He was not going to get a book deal. He was not going to be invited to speak at local synagogues. He was not going to get a lot of fame and fortune out of this. And neither would his disciples. All the religious leaders would turn against them. They would turn against Jesus. They would turn against his message. They would turn against his followers. There would be no safe place for these people. And they needed to know that up front. The Messiah would be rejected by the very men who studied the Scriptures to find Him. Mark 8.32, it says, And He said this plainly. Now, this is an an important point here because Jesus has talked a lot through parables. He's talked a lot through stories. Now He is shifting His communication style especially with his disciples, to talk plainly, to talk openly, to talk without any concealment. And this is what it says. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Peter has just made this this massive declaration over Jesus. You're the guy. You're the one we've been waiting for. And now you're telling us that somehow it's God's plan for you, the king of the universe, the rock of ages, To suffer? Peter pulls Jesus by the hand. He takes him by the hand. He pulls him aside and he rebuked the Son of God that he had so quickly praised just moments before. Matthew's account of the story says that Peter replied, God forbid it. May it never happen. 
And if you look back in verse 31, it says that Jesus said he must suffer. He told his disciples he must suffer. It is necessary. Pastor and author Tim Keller wrote this. By using the word must, Jesus is also indicating that he is planning to die, that he is doing it voluntarily. He's not merely predicting that it will happen, and this is what probably offends Peter the most. It is one thing for Jesus to say, I will fight and be defeated, and another to say, this is why I came, I intend to die. That is totally inexplicable to Peter. That's why the minute Jesus says this, Peter begins to rebuke him. This is the verb used elsewhere for what Jesus does to demons. This means Peter is condemning Jesus in the strongest possible language. And we are tempted to think like Peter. Suffering is bad. Suffering can't be from God. And yet because of the damage that sin did to the world, the Bible made it plain that it would take the suffering of God to break the power of, over sin and death that was over us. God doesn't want you to suffer. Jesus didn't want to suffer. And he demonstrated that when he asked the Father to take this cup away when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Suffering isn't fun. They tried to open the first church of suffering a few years back and nobody attended. Not even the pastor showed up. Nobody stands in line and says, yes, I'd like to suffer, please. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice what just happened. A few verses before, Jesus gave Simon the new nickname, Peter, meaning stone or pebble. Simon was the rock. Before Dwayne Johnson was the rock, Simon was the rock. I'm sure he walked around asking the disciples, can you smell what the rock is cooking? They're like, you've gone too far, Simon. You've gone just too far. He was a big shot now. Jesus gave him a nickname. Jesus has elevated his standing to a rock-solid kind of a guy. But in the span of five verses, Simon is called by three different names. Simon, which is his given name, Peter, which is his new nickname, and Satan, a name he definitely did not want to be called. Satan means adversary. To have made the declaration that Jesus is Christ and have your stock rise significantly with the Son of God only to be rebuked by Him shortly thereafter and called Satan is probably not how he thought his day was going to play out. And Matthew's version of this story tells, uh, it says that Jesus told Peter, you are a hindrance to me. Your mentality is a snare. It's a trap for God's purposes in my life. You are not listening to God, you're listening to yourself. You're not focused on God's plan, you're focused on your own plan. You're not striving and pressing forward for God's purposes, you're striving for your own. I'm sure the other disciples had this look on their face like, ooh, who's the big shot now? 
Satan. To make sure that we all understand this point, I, I need you to hear me on this. God doesn't want you to suffer, but he will use painful and difficult moments in our lives. If you are alive today, and I hope you are, if you're here, if you're not, just hold on, we'll bring you back from the dead at the altar Time in a few moments. If you're alive, you will experience difficulty, you will experience frustration, pain, heartache, sorrow, loss, and suffering. We live in a, fo- a fallen world, so its effects will be felt by everyone who lives in this fallen world. But in those moments, he wants us to lean into him. He wants us to hear his heartbeat and know that he loves us. And it's not really suffering if you're already dead. Mark 8.34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we read that. And we nod our heads in agreement with it. And we usually keep on reading. Because we try not to think about what Jesus said right there. It doesn't fit into our theology. It is the most natural thing in the world to put yourself first. If you're standing in a group of people and someone walks up and says, I've just opened this box of assorted chocolates, would you like one? We would step over our own grandmother to get first pick so we're not left with the nasty ones in the box that nobody ever eats. Yes, we should be last place people and put others ahead of ourselves. But Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying you need to be a dead man walking. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be one of his disciples, Jesus did you a huge favor and he made it into a simple, easy to remember three-step process. Number one, Deny yourself. This phrase means to forget about yourself. Don't just put yourself last. Forget putting yourself anywhere. Lose sight of your own self and your own self-interest. Denying yourself means to give yourself wholly over to Christ and share in his sufferings. The disciples had to hear this and think, Like we might, well, I could try. I mean, I could give it a shot. I can try to put myself last or at least think of myself less often. But Jesus isn't finished yet. Number two in this easy three-step process, take up your cross. Take up your cross. And this phrase can easily get lost in translation because we don't crucify criminals in America. We've had firing squads. We've had the hangman's noose. We've had lethal injection, electric chair, gas chamber, but we've never had crucifixion, not that I'm aware of. And this was an incredibly offensive thing for Jesus to say because it is a horrific way to die. The cross was the symbol of a cruel and inhumane death. The worst criminals died by crucifixion. Jesus is telling them to metaphorically pick up their cross and die to themselves. Luke's account 
says, take up your cross daily. Take up your cross daily, meaning throughout the day, every day, and all the days of your life. To take up your cross doesn't mean to carry burdens or have problems. You may have heard people say, you know, uh, well, I've got high blood pressure. I guess that's just my cross to bear. No, not the same thing. Not the same thing. When we say things like that, we expose the fact that we don't understand the cost for our salvation. That's like me saying, well, I guess baldness is my cross to bear. Right. Oh, oh goodness. I'm bald. I don't know if you were aware of that. Nothing happening up here. A lot happens around the side. I mean, I could look like Bozo the Clown. But uh, I just, or really just do that comb over. I could, I could make it work. To liken an inconvenience or a disruption to our preferred way of living is not the same as a cross to bear or taking up your cross. My, my son Micah was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes several weeks ago. This is an incredibly disruptive thing to the family. Because Micah would be perfectly happy eating candy 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 366 days of the year. He just got to have that extra day just somewhere. He'll squeeze it in. Uh, But it's frustrating and it is disruptive to our, uh, our, our way of life. That's not what Jesus is referring to when he said, take up your cross. To take up your cross means that you identify with Christ in his rejection, in his shame, in his suffering, and in his death. There's a segment within the Assemblies of God Missions Department called Live Dead. Missionaries that work in the Live Dead movement go into the hardest mission fields, the most dangerous places on earth, all to preach the gospel and see lives transformed among the 1.1 billion unreached people. People who have never even heard the name Jesus Christ. And these men and women echo the call of Christ to take up their cross daily. It reminds me of a man named Jim Calvert. He was a missionary to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands. Now he knew they were cannibals before he left. And he still said, I'll go. As they near the islands where James and his crew will be departing the ship, the ship's captain tried to persuade him to turn back. The ship's captain said to him, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. To that, Calvert replied, we died before we came here. When you've died to yourself, there's nothing this world can do to you. The problem is this. We haven't died to ourself. We still push our desires. We still push our wants, our preferences, our opinions. We constantly put ourselves first. We do things because it benefits us. Paul wrote in Romans 12.1, he says, I urge you, I beg you, I instruct you in the strongest of terms with all of God's help 
and all of God's mercy, place your bodies on God's altar as a living and holy sacrifice that God himself will be pleased with and find acceptable because this is your reasonable act of service and submission to God. Do you know what the problem is with living sacrifices? They like to crawl off the altar before they die. If you, if you lived in Old Testament times and you brought a goat, and you sat the goat down on the altar and you said, just stay. And the goat sees the blade. He's like, you can stay. I'm out of here. You lay down. Living sacrifices don't like to stay on the altar. They're like, this is inconvenient. This looks painful. This looks incredibly, incredibly uh, disruptive to my day's plans. I was going to be, you know, grazing on some grass out in the back 40, and you're about to kill me. So I think I'm just going to get up and go. Living sacrifices like to crawl off the altar. Now, we're not going to die, obviously, like the animal sacrifices did, but instead we are strongly instructed to stay on the altar of sacrifice and be submitted to his will to take up our cross daily and to follow him as long as we live. Number three. Follow me. Follow me. It's only after we've done step number one and step number two that we get to do step number three. Jesus did not give them to, the, to us in the incorrect order. He gave them to us in the correct order. The biggest problem is we like to skip to number three and just, you know, live our lives as best as we possibly can, live our best life now and not worry about step one and step two. Oh, they'll, they'll happen eventually. It's, it's not easy to deny yourself. It's not easy to take up your cross. I get that. But Jesus gave them in the correct order. Number one, deny yourself. Reject your own wants and desires for your life and pursue God's will for you. Number two, die to yourself by taking up your cross daily. Only then do you understand what discipleship is all about by being able to do number three in following Him. We get to accompany Jesus on His quest to seek and save lost sheep. What greater reward in life is there than seeing individuals transformed by the power of the gospel, which then transforms families, which then transforms neighborhoods and villages, which then transforms entire nations with the gospel of Christ. We get to take part on that quest. We get to accompany him on this mission and be his representatives on the earth. I was incredibly honored to be invited this past Thursday to celebrate the semester-ending Chi Alpha service at Rice University by uh, Josh Bell, one of the missionaries that we support. And this semester-ending Chi Alpha service is their baptismal service. Eight young people who are part of this Chi Alpha, this college ministry, uh, made a public declaration that they had accepted Jesus Christ. Most, you know, some of them grew up in religious homes, but they did not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Others did not grow up religious at all. But they came to Chi Alpha, and they found a family, and they found the Savior, more importantly. And their lives were changed, and they wanted to make a public declaration. So in the courtyard, in the middle of Rice University, they have a horse trough, and they're baptizing students. 
And it was so exciting to see this moment for them because it was, it was such a blessing to me to be a part of that service and to witness that service because it's Friendship Church and churches like it that enabled Josh to be on the campus at Rice University, that enabled them to preach the gospel, that enabled them to minister to kids and see lives transformed. Those kids don't get changed and transformed by the power of the gospel if there's no one to preach it. And the people can't be there to preach it if there's no one to send them. We do our part, and God will do his part. And so our job is to follow him on his quest to seek and save the lost sheep. Now, why would any rational person do what Jesus is asking his disciples to do? It doesn't make any sense. We're wired to put ourselves first, to grab all we can. I actually, uh, one of the gifts I got for Pastor Appreciation Day was a pie, a, a chocolate pie. And so when I took it home, because it was Pastor Appreciation Day and I'm the only pastor in the family, I took the pie and I cut a sliver right out of the middle of it so that anyone else's pie slice would be missing part of their slice because I took a slice right out of the middle. I asserted my dominance. We're wired to put ourselves first. I, 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 and I joke, I tell people, I tell certainly people in my family, well, the tithe belongs to the Lord. So I'll, I'll take that first part, thank you very much. <clears throat> I tease, but we are wired to put ourselves first, to grab all we can. Why would anyone deny themselves and die to themselves daily? Jesus answered that question in the next few verses. Mark 8, 35, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. This word save is the word sozo in Greek, and it means to keep safe and sound from harm and danger. If you are a Christian because you think it makes you safe from the enemy's attacks, you have not been a Christian for long enough. We are not immune to the enemy's attacks because we live in a fallen world among fallen people who put their own self-interests first. That being said, one of the main lessons we can learn from the book of Job is that God limits what the enemy can do and God will use those difficult moments to help us grow and refine us and eventually to provide a testimony for someone else going through the same situation who does not have the same hope in Jesus Christ that we do. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because bad things happen to bad people. And those bad people don't have the hope of Jesus Christ that we do. And so when, it, when the Bible talks about that Jesus, that there is a fellowship in his suffering, he suffered so that he could know what we deal with and he could be a, a perfect example of how to live a godly life through that suffering and endure through that suffering. So when we have ungodly people around us going through divorce, going through cancer diagnosis, going through the loss of a loved one, and we have been touched by that suffering, we are able to minister to those people and say, look, you will never get through this by your own strength. You will only get through this 
by the peace and power of a relationship that comes with Jesus Christ. So your suffering is not wasted. God will never waste an experience. He'll allow you to go through difficult days so that you can use the lessons you learned and the peace and the grace that God got you through to minister to people who don't have that grace, who don't have that power, who don't have the relationship with Jesus Christ. So don't shy away from suffering. Don't shy away from experiencing what God has you to experience because He will use those experiences to minister to people. I want to make a point of clarification. In this verse, Jesus is not commanding that we run around the world on a suicide mission. We all have a self-preservation instinct. We all want to live. Scripture tells us that we were created with eternity in our hearts because humanity was originally created to live forever in God's presence. Jesus is not expecting us to want to die. When he said whoever would save his life will lose it, the word life there is not the normal Greek word that is used for physical life. It's the word psyche, which is translated soul. It's where your feelings and your desires come from. So if you try to live the Christian life holding on to all your old desires and all your old wants, you will lose them. But if you lose all all of your old wants and desires for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ, you will find new desires, godly desires, and a new way of living. Mark 8, 36-37, it says, For what? Does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What use is there? What advantage is there to the Christian who through his own desires and influence and effort gains the whole universe and yet damages, injures, suffers loss to his own soul? When we put our desires above the desires of God, we are way off balance. Even if those desires gain us more than we could ever dream, it will not be worth it in the end. I want to tell you a secret that most people will not admit. Your greatest desire, the thing your heart wants more than anything else, is not success. It's not money, young people. It's not money. It's not fame. It's not to be insta-famous. It's not significance. It's not admiration. The thing your heart wants the most, and even if it doesn't realize it, is a relationship with the Father. That is what you were created for, to have a relationship with the Father. Everything else is peripheral. Every bit of success and fame and money, if it does not bring glory to Christ, is worthless. You're better off giving it all away. Every other thing, money, success, fame, admiration, it will take you down a path where your soul is damaged and suffers loss because of it. And once you lose it, Jesus asks the question, what can you give in exchange to restore it? Mark eight thirty eight. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
Jesus was telling his disciples, this world is faithless. It is incredibly wicked. It is devoted to sinning. They don't do it accidentally. They do it on purpose. If you choose that over him, if you choose to let your testimony side with this perverse culture over the holiness and righteousness of God, what is left to be said of you? If you're ashamed of Jesus, then you're ashamed of the most amazing gift the world has ever seen. If you're ashamed of Jesus and the salvation that he bled and died for, then how in the world could you expect to stand in the presence of the Father and be welcomed into his heaven? Christ's first appearance was prophesied by over 300 statements in the Old Testament. And it happened 2,000 years ago. And not one of those prophecies has gone unfulfilled. With that much evidence, it should leave you with absolutely no doubt in your mind that his second coming is a fact as well. It has been prophesied by the New Testament. And it has been promised by Jesus himself. When I come in the glory of the Father and with the holy angels. Then Jesus made one of his more difficult statements for us to understand. Mark 9, 1, and this is where we'll end. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's an interesting statement. People read this statement and think, did Jesus, say, did Jesus just say some of his disciples will never die? No, that's not what he was saying. He has just told his disciples his three-step plan for discipleship. Deny yourself, die daily, follow me. So I think what Jesus is doing here in Mark 9, 1 is giving his disciples a twofold promise. First, the thing that they're so desperate to see, the kingdom of God on earth, is about to be realized in a way they could not possibly have imagined through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's promising that most of them, the disciples, the 12 disciples minus Judas, will get to see it with their own eyes and experience it in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. The kingdom of God is coming with power, and they'll get to see it before they die. Second, I think Jesus, um, the, the interesting thing in this phrase is he uses the, the phrase taste death. The, the great thing about the Greek language, and sometimes the reason I'll bring words out is because it's significant, the word choice that's, that gets used. So, for instance, we say the word love. We use the word love, and we say, I love my wife. I love this church. I love tacos. I, you know, and we use the same word love, and they definitely mean different things. Hopefully, you don't have the same commitment level to tacos as you do to your spouse. Some of you, I'm not so sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, in the Greek language, we, we have one, one, one word for love, but in the Greek language, there are three Greek words for love. Um, so, we have one English word, I'm sorry, one English word for love. The Greek has three words for love. Uh, we have one word for death. 
Greek has 10. And so that means that every word that's used has a different shade of meaning. It clearly has some sort of different insight. The word that there are three, three of those Greek words, meaning death, are used over 100 times in Scripture. So three of them have very shades of meaning that are important. The one that is used here is the Greek word thanatos. And it is the word that would have stood out to any person living in the first century that knew the Greek language. Thanatos doesn't just mean death. Thanatos is actually a proper name. It is the personification of death. For us, it would be like saying the Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper is the personification of death. The hood, the sickle, you know, that whole thing. And so that's how we picture death if death were a person. And that's the word that Jesus chose to use. Why? Well, based on my experience with the dying, I tend to believe, this is just my opinion, but I tend to believe that when a person dies, they're greeted by one of two individuals, the angel of the Lord or the angel of death. And this is why I think that. When my mom died of cancer uh, coming up on 10 years ago, the nurse walked into the room right after she died. And she said, I can tell, in speaking to my dad, she said, I can tell your, your wife was a Christian. And that's a significant statement because my mother had just been transported to that facility. She had been there for less than 24 hours. She had not seen any doctors because it was a Saturday. She had not seen, she'd only seen the nurses kind of coming and going uh, very, very sporadically. So she had almost no interaction with uh, most of these individuals that worked there. And they didn't know that she was a Christian, and they certainly didn't know she was a pastor's wife because she had just arrived. But this nurse walked in the room right after my mother died, and she said, I can tell she was a Christian. My dad asked her, how? How can you tell? And she said, with all my years caring for the dying, there is an evil presence in the room when a non-Christian dies. She said sometimes, in, this, in this, the facility she worked at, sometimes people will scream. Sometimes they will look off into a blank space and scream. She said we had one lady rip her blanket off, screaming that her feet were on fire as she was being dragged to hell. But she said when you walk in the room after a Christian has passed, you feel peace, you feel a calm presence. And you just know the angel of the Lord has been in the room. When Jesus promised his disciples would not taste death, I think he was promising them all of your hope, all of your faith in me is well put. I will not let you down. You will see the kingdom of God in a way you could not possibly have imagined. And when it's your time to go, you won't experience Thanatos. You won't be greeted at death's door by the grim reaper. You will be ushered into the presence of God by the angel of the Lord. Amen. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. We've had a couple questions submitted. The first question is, isn't suffering only defined by how we rate pain? So suffering is only defined by your own definition of pain. Would this mean that suffering for God means nothing? For God does not suffer how do, we, how do we overcome suffering? So there's actually a lot of questions kind of wrapped up in that one question. Um, I think suffering is kind of universal. I mean, certainly there are people who have a lower 
pain threshold than others. Um, and so it, it is subjective to a degree on how you will define suffering. Um, but I think, you know, clearly we're referring to the suffering that Jesus uh, endured and what he went through, and we see him as an example, and that he went through the most extreme thing a human body could endure, and yet he was still faithful through that. Uh, how do you overcome suffering? Well, I mean, you just, you endure. You, when you try to deal with things like that in your own, in your own physical strength, you will fail. Jesus was able to do what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And so everything Jesus did, the miracles, the healings, and also enduring the difficulty and the suffering that he endured was all through the power of the Holy Spirit. The best way in order to endure suffering is just be as close to God as you possibly can. There is certainly, you know, I, I was actually talking with my wife uh, last night. We were talking about missions and how some missionaries are going into very very uh, um, difficult and dangerous places and um, how, you know, that probably, I mean, they've got to be super close to Jesus because there is danger at every corner for some of them and they're very in the dangerous places they are. So um, I think you just have to stay as close to Christ as possible. Hopefully I answered your question. Well, if I didn't, you can send me an email and let me know if I need to clarify anything. Uh, the second question is, I'm a, I'm a believer who has always wanted to be a medical practitioner. Should I then leave that since it is what I wished for myself and head to an unknown place to preach the gospel? Is that, denying one's, is that what denying oneself means? I believe that you need to, every person who accepts the call to Christ comes to Christ with an open hand and an open heart and an open mind. If you accept the call to be a Christian and be a follower of Christ, it means you don't get to determine the trajectory of your life. That you pray and you ask the Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? And I believe that the Lord will speak to you. If you are restless, if you feel like you're operating in disobedience, the Holy Spirit is you know, speaking that to you, then certainly that will give you an indication. If you're operating in obedience, then you'll know. And, and don't misunderstand, you know, for instance, I am operating in exactly where God has me. God called me to ministry. He called me to pastor this church. And so I'm doing it. Does that mean every day is easy? No, it does not mean every day is easy. It actually means most days aren't easy. That's just the, the nature of being, working for the Lord, being exactly where God wants you to do. The enemy's going to attack you. So don't think that, well, if I'm in God's will, it should be a lot easier. What, you, what you'll find out is just, just open your heart to the Lord and say, God, I want to be in your will. And if I'm not in your will, would you reveal that to me? Because I want to do what you want me to do with my life. So keep doing what you're doing until the Holy Spirit reveals to you, if he does, that you are out of God's will and you can move forward with what he wants you to do. And I believe he'll tell you. If you're living in disobedience, he wants you to live in obedience. He'll reveal that to you. The third question is, some say Mark chapter uh, 9 verse 1 is referring to the transfiguration since it occurs right after that statement in one of the gospels any merit to that the trans the mount of transfiguration which will should be the i think the next story we cover but we'll have to cover it in a couple weeks um it does happen uh chronologically right after this conversation um they will see a measure of the coming of the 
glory of God. Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain. There's this huge spiritual moment um, that happens with Jesus and three disciples and Moses and Elijah and, and this whole thing. I'm not going to preach the sermon, but um, so it's a very spiritual experience, but it's not the coming of the kingdom of God. Moses and Elijah don't stay. They're not planting churches. They're not hanging out. They're there. They have a conversation with Jesus and they take off. And so that was not the coming of God. And it certainly wouldn't relate to them not tasting death. Judas is going to die. And every one of those guys is going to die. So it obviously doesn't mean a physical. They get to avoid a physical death. It means something different. And I believe that it is saying you're going to see the kingdom of God in power. Most of you. Um, he didn't want to give a spoiler alert. I mean, Jesus clearly knew who was going to betray him. But he didn't say that you disciples are going to not taste death except Judas. He's such a Judas. He, they, he didn't do that. But So they all died eventually. But what he's, I believe he's saying something a little bit different. So um, certainly the Mount of Transfiguration is this massive, important moment in the lives of those disciples that witnessed it. Would you stand with me this morning? Thank you for your questions. Hope I answered them well. If I didn't, shoot me an email and I'll try to clarify um, don't don't get too loud for me. Don't get too loud just yet. Um, in the book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. You will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him. And with Him everything else thrown in. We choose to build our lives on some foundation. We might build our lives on our own ambition, our own, our family connections, on our own wealth, on our intellect, on our own abilities. But one thing you can be absolutely sure of in this life is that storms will come. Winds will howl. Storms will slam against you and everything that you've built for yourself. The thunder will roar. And all you've built for yourself will be shaken and ruined. And when the storms of life come, all you have built in the name of self will fall. The only thing left standing will be what you built with Christ as the foundation. All other foundations we build our lives on, all other ground is sinking sand. So today, choose you this day whom you will serve. Yourself and your limited ability and knowledge or the limitless and powerful God of all creation. Our worship team is going to lead us in a song as we close our service today. <clears throat> and I just invite you, if you need prayer, if you'd like prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. If you need to build your life on Christ, I want to pray with you. If you need prayer for healing or ministry, you've, you're facing a situation and you want prayer, we just invite you forward as they lead us in prayer. If you want to stand on behalf of someone else as they lead us in this final song, 
want to give you an opportunity to come forward for prayer. So if that's you, you need prayer today. As they lead us in this final song, would you come forward and let's pray for you today.